no. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Robert Higgins. And I'm Hey Tuxford. And this is episode 119 of Screenwriting for the Trenches, uh, a podcast about the craft and expression of screenwriting in all its forms from the perspective of writers just like uh, you. Wow, Rob. Wow. So this week, we have an interview with Denise Cruz Castino, who wrote the film Five Weddings, which just happened to make its way all make its way all the way to Cannes. But before we interview Denise, we have to discuss, as usual, all the hullabaloo that screenwriting Twitter is a Twitter about this week. You want to talk take it away, Zach? It's just another day in screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama. It's just another day in screenwriting drama. It's another day in screenwriting drama. All right, so we're back. We're going to get to... Denise in a little bit, but we're going to go through these things the way we always do. And the first thing, there was a, some sort of initial outrage about it, but it, because it's more likely affects those other people in our sister union, the sag yeah. yeah. The So there wasn't a lot of outrage in the screenwriting, in the screenwriting community, although there was some. But basically... This week at CES, the SAG after, yeah, they released this press release about them reaching a, what they called an ethical agreement to partner up with Replica Studios for an AI program that basically allows a company like Replica Studios to engage with an AI, with an actor in order to create an AI model of their voice basically yeah. for, for voice acting and video yeah, games for video games like and things of that nature so that they can basically take a sample of your voice use it to create an ai model and then ethically pay you for the use without necessarily having to come have you come in and loop you know tons and tons of lines of dialogue and I, I imagine that's not an inexpensive process. So they're doing this so that they don't have to spend as much on an actor. But they said that the the sort of details of this ethical agreement are that the they do not own the rights to the, this license in perpetuity. At least they, well, they do own it in perpetuity, but only within the, the span of the work by which you are sort of signing up for. So if you it's, sign up for to do like Modern Warfare 4, they don't have the rights to use your your voice in Modern Warfare 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Like supposedly it's just it's one project at a time. Supposedly. Right. Supposedly. I I mean this is a tough one for me because the idea of them getting paid Obviously, it sounds a lot better than the original, like, let's just scan you and own you forever that, right. you know, was striking. Uh, but at the same time, it I, I I feel like I haven't seen more of the details and I just can't help but feel that they're going to hit a point where what if you scan somebody and you're like, great, I paid them for Modern Warfare 4, but now I'm just going to modify them a little bit. And now they're 
her character is a completely robot voice, you know, made up voice for Modern Warfare Five. Like, right? I just, yeah. I just wonder if this is going to add to like a scrubbing, you know, where they're going to get all these voices in there, and then they won't need any actors at all. Well, yeah, that's the other part of it is that, you know, just like any other AI learning model, they need voices in order to learn. And so right. this is a way for them to add to their learning database legally. And then it's it's their intellectual property. Once you've given them the rights to your voice for their project, that's their intellectual property. They paid you for it. And yeah. so you no longer own that performance not that you did before but it was easier at least there's a face behind it but in this case there's no face behind it you know what i mean you did the work you went in you you know spent however many hours doing that but not anymore now they can just say well we created this you know this person wasn't even there when we when we did these things the other thing is that they've they've had they've said that you can revoke consent but i'm wondering how that works like, yeah, and it, maybe there's more information to to learn about it, and maybe it it is more. Maybe you can sit there and go, you can have my voice for this performance, but you can't add it to your library or for your AI. Maybe you can take away that consent. Right. I think there there's that kind of language in the contract. There's also, I think, things in there about what you're allowed to be made to say. They can veto certain things so that That's you good. don't have like a Joan is awful, awful kind of situation. <laughs> you know, the last thing you want is that kind of situation where you want someone is just like, I'm taking a shit on myself, you know, like that kind of, you know, like. In the nobody, middle of church, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants that. So there. Somebody there is, does, but not everybody. Yeah, I, I will say this. It's a step in the right direction. I don't necessarily like it. I think this mostly appeals to high dollar in demand actors. You know, if you want to get Kiefer Sutherland, but he's on a television show and mm. he can't take time out of his life. Cause I don't imagine that being in the booth and looping like however many lines, you know what I mean? And just doing that stuff over and over. That stuff's not, it's not, it takes time. Yeah. It, it's not an inexpensive amount of time. And so, having the ability to do that and be getting paid for your efforts. I'm sure that, you know, that's a boon for, like I said, these high dollar actors, but at the same time, I wonder if, you know, the thing about it is that when you get hired for a job as an up and coming actor, let's say you're only there to play soldier number four and soldier number four has a total of 50 lines, but you've got to come in and, you know, do various polishes and and somebody comes in and says, well, we liked you for this. Might We might come in for this too. You get a chance to know people. You know, it's a networking opportunity. Every job that you take is also a networking opportunity. So, yeah. you know, there's little things that get lost. You know what I mean? In, in these little things where they come in and you might spend two hours doing a little loop. You know, I always imagine that it's something like how they do it in Mission Impossible where they have you read something like the lazy brown fox you know jumped mm -hmm. over the like that kind of thing and then okay we've got all the consonants and the vowels represented now we can make them say whatever we want like you know you spend an hour or two doing that and then they have your voice and can yeah. replicate it and i mean these people i think there's also there's i'm gonna just argue a lot of these people get into act like voice acting and acting to act right and basically right. they're taking that potentially away from them where it's like 
imagine this is me doing it bad like obviously this is the extreme but like if you went in there and you had robin williams as the genie and you got all his consonants and vowels and whatnot you would not get any of the improv or the vocal inflection like sometimes these animated characters for these tv shows or video games they take so much of the actor you know and their performance in effect and it feels like if we're just going to start feeding you know consonants and vowels in there we're going to miss the acting Right, one hundred percent. That and that's that's the other part of it. You know, beyond the the lack of networking, there's also the lack of performance, which yeah. you, and then there, that brings up another question: Are you allowed to then use that in a voice reel, or is it? You know what I mean? Because you have those people have those things in a reel, but are you able to use something that's not really your voice? You know, yeah, what I mean? something you if didn't really in, say. Right. If you're in Modern Warfare Four and you want to put, you can put that on your resume, kind of. You know, like, did you have to credit that, like, that you were AI generated? I don't know. Yeah, and that's a good question. Yeah, there's a lot of questions that just comes up. I think it asks more questions than solves problems. And and then I, there was there was something spinning off of this this week. I kind of tagged this onto the agreement. This is not through regenerative studios, but a AI company decided in their infinite wisdom to feed George Carlin episodes into the generator oh, yes, and this generate was a, a new, yeah. a new George Carlin episode and see like special. And yeah. Special. Yes. An hour long um, special. Hour long special. And and I think this is the thing again, this is kind of the epitome of what nobody wants. Right. Which, 100%. Which, which we don't have evidence regenerative is going in that direction. But like this is this is, you know, uh, why we're tentative about when things like this come out, because then you wind up with this, which obviously his family, his daughter spoke out vehemently against and was like, he had 13 specials like he doesn't need, you know, and he is a human being made them, you know, he doesn't need a 14th. And go find some alive artists and support them. Yeah, you know? like I I literally listened to because George Carlin is one of my favorite comedians of all time, and I'm a huge stand up person. So I was very interested in what this thing sounded like. First of all, it sounds like a very much younger version of Carlin back from circa maybe the late '80s, early '90s. So. That's number one. It was a big problem of it. When you're listening to it, you're like, that's not even Carlin before he died. That's old Carlin. That's number one. Number two, when you listen to the the comedian, the the special of it, the comedian, I shouldn't even use that word. When you listen to this thing, try to replicate Carlin's sense of humor. It gets his cadence on how to deliver a joke, but it doesn't get Carlin's humor. There's political humor in there, but it doesn't have, it is not able to turn a joke the way Carlin was able to turn a joke. And yeah. some people have compared it to the, the way that Carlin was towards the end of his life where he was in such a state that he was more of an alarmist than a comedian. And I understand what they're saying, but Carlin still knew how to tell a joke. And yeah. even in Carlin's, you know, Carlin's delivery, like, this is what you were talking about earlier. It doesn't have any of Carlin's zeal the way he would hit a punchline. And, like, you know, if you listen to the way Car uh, Carlin would say something like, you, that's why they call it the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. And there's a way that Carlin's grizzled, 
voice sort of delivers this with this world weariness that it's one of those things where you laugh because you don't want to cry. But right. you get that from Carlin himself and you understand that he knows what he's talking about because he's been doing it for genera- for, for for generations, yeah. but decades. And, and it comes out of that performance. He, he believes in the performance. He believes in the joke. Right. And it comes out a certain way where AI is not going to, it doesn't have a belief. Right. And calling it a comedy special, I think is, I think is, is overstating because I didn't laugh once. The one thing that nobody has said about this thing is that it's funny. It's not funny. It can barely be called amusing. Like I said, it gets Carlin's cadence down and certainly it is relevant. It starts talking about school shootings and things like right up front, but it, it doesn't have his ability to do what comedians do, which is be funny. It's not yeah. funny. And I didn't want it. Who wanted this? Who are these fucking people? It- well, I think I think I think the big reason why he was a good candidate for this AI is they have 13 episodes to feed into him and, and numerous interviews. And he's been such a long running comedic mm-hmm. and comedian, then he'll he'll be there. I mean, I think that's part of what it is, is they had so much of his material to go off of. Versus, you know, maybe an a comedian who died young or something like that or didn't have as many specials. Well, to even to counter that point, I would argue that they had 13 specials, God knows how, how many interviews and any little five minute stand up spots that they could find on the Internet. And you know what they couldn't make it do? Make it funny. Yeah. They had like hours and hours of material and they couldn't they couldn't even get one joke, one chuckle out of me. As I watched this thing, as I listened to this thing, it just wasn't funny. And so nobody wants it. We don't need it. And certainly we all miss George Carlin. The man is, was even at his age was gone too soon. One of the greatest comedians to ever do it. And just an astute and brilliant man. And this is not that, nor was it welcome by anyone who was ever a fan of George Carlin. He would be appalled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like a it's like a weird AI effigy. Yeah, um, it's the kind of irony that George Carlin would rail against. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. His, com- his comedy was full of just this delicious irony. And the irony of creating something that George Carlin himself would be against cannot be understated. So yeah. that's a zero out of ten. Would not recommend. Whoever put this out there, I, I hope that they hear this because I vehemently dislike them. I, I I I honestly do. I feel like they're a bad person. I if if whoa, ooh, I just, I saw that and I was hot because Carlin, like I said, is is one of my favorite comedians of all time. And stand up comedy, some of you, I think I've probably said this on the show. I think stand up comedy is the hardest job in the world. I know there are people who disarm roadside bombs. I I understand that, but roadside bombs also have a manual. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's, no, there's no manual. To stand up comedy, so you know I it's see that yeah yeah. So, so and, we did have we did have some classic classic screenwriter drama this week as well, and well, you know I know. Fuck, well, I fuck. wanted to before we go to the 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 thing we what did I did want to acknowledge the last part in our AI, AI saga. Oh yeah, was that there was also chat the owners of Jet GPT came out this week in in response to. The fact that they're being sued by 
Oh, yeah. Uh, the owners, they not only are they being sued by like uh, a bunch of like 17 or so popular authors, including uh, authors, including George R.R. R. Martin and Jody Picoult and John Grisham, like they are also now being sued by the New York Times as they do not want to be scraped and they do not want their newspaper to be used to train Jet Chat GPT-4, which is in the wings. And Uh, a statement this week, the owners of ChatGPT had to recognize that they can't make a model, nor would they be able to make a model that would serve their customers by only using things that are in the public domain because they're so old. And so everybody was like, oh, okay, so you're admitting it. What you're doing is theft. What you do is theft. Yeah. Thanks for letting us know. <laughs> Thanks for admitting it out loud. I'm sure that's going to go into somebody's court case, but they're basically trying to say they're trying to put it all under this umbrella of fair use and they're not making headway so far, which is good, which is very good. But yeah, they're trying to sell it on that. Like, we're just trying to fair. No, it's not fair use because if it was fair, you'd pay people. You're not. You're, you're using something that you're going to charge for in terms of licensing yeah. and you're stealing from other artists to do it. That's not fair use. And so, they didn't consent. They're, they're, you know, they don't even know if they're there or not, you know? Right, 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 right. So yeah. thanks for, for being honest with us guys. We appreciate the honesty. What yeah. I was going to say that's going to help. I don't know why they posted that. They're like, Oh, everybody's going to really rally behind us. And no, no, uh, yeah, so okay, the screenwriter drama. Classic, yeah, so a friend of the podcast, Nathan Graham Davis, became the subject, kind of like the epicenter of this, when he advised to keep an eye on your page count, especially if you're a new writer, and there was some umbrage with that. Yeah, this guy took umbrage with it. What I, I think we have his name. <laughs> I don't know if you want to name and shame or not. He I do, to... I, I'll, I'll name the guy. Like, I, you know what the, I thought was really funny? Through the whole thing, this guy was, you know, going back and forth with everyone on the internet. And I was looking at his follower count to see if he was raising, you know, because some people do it for clicks. They just do it for the clicks. Yeah. And then you watch their follower count go sky high with the people who, you know, sort of want to follow you know, the drama. Right. Or they, well, not even that, but people who just also lay down on the side where they they may not want to put their hat in the arena but they or step into the arena put their name in a hat i'm just mixing metaphors all over the place but anyway they may not want to step into the twitter drama but they agree with what this person is saying so they just quietly follow the person and probably like dm like oh, i agree with you like that kind of right. thing so but i was watching this guy's follower account and it got raised by one during the whole process the follower account went up by one okay well. so you know it was i don't know maybe I, I won't name the guy like if you were in it you were in it it's 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 a thing but the guy was basically his whole thing was i am special my scripts are special and anyone who disagrees with me should come and find one of my 180 page scripts and read it and i'll show you the kind of movies that y'all should be making out here because my scripts are super special and y'all just don't want to read scripts. 
Yeah, I think I think it was, it's it's pretty awkward just because a lot of people in the business. I mean, first of all, tons of people on screenwriting Twitter are reading scripts. They're trading scripts. They're sharing scripts. They're promoting each other's scripts. So screenwriting Twitter is not script phobic in any which way. And as far as the industry folks, they're still reading a lot of scripts. They just have to be more discerning because they can't go through and slog through 180 page scripts every day when they've got a lot of shit to do. And I think I think what it is, is there's no understanding of the quantity of material kind of going through a desk and the amount of time it takes. And yeah, I guess if you had the most amazing 180 page you know, script of all time that happened to appeal to them, they may be riveted. But you and I probably have read some 180 page scripts. Well, yeah. And and I've never read an 180 page script that I was like, this was a good use of my time. <laughs> no, you're right about that. That's 100 percent correct. But there's the, I, I don't know this. This thing was like, I'd like to think of it in terms of I'm going to disagree with you on, on one thing, but only because we both acknowledged on the show and we, we've talked about this recently. I forget what episode, but, you know, gatekeepers don't they, we not to give sympathy, sympathy for the devil. But gatekeepers have a lot of scripts being thrown at them all mm -hmm. the time through queries and people DMing them, sending them to their house and finding all these creative, stupid ways in order to send screenplays to gatekeepers hoping that they're going to be the one that stands out you know what i mean i understand that it's kind of like a screenwriting bukkake for a lot of gatekeepers especially the more visible ones yeah. and and so you have this you know deluge of scripts being shot at you out of a cannon to you at all at all places at all times and yeah. I understand that. But at the same time, we know that gatekeepers don't want to read scripts because they're constantly hiring underlings to read scripts. And even even when they the, even now that they've got free underlings to read their scripts, they're like, even that is too expensive. Let's hire machines. Let's hire people. Let's well, let's bring in people who we won't pay to train the machines to read the scripts that we don't want. Yeah. To, or yeah. let's make the writer pay for a blacklist read and then if they get a certain score they send me their blacklist evaluation and i'll consider then you know they're putting the burden on other people right um, and, and on the machines and, and like they're machine. literally trying to figure out how they can get out of reading a script until it's absolutely necessary so no they don't want to read your script and the, that's true that's yeah. true they don't and that's that's the because they're part of the industry and this is the part of, of about this thing that really sort of gets my goat like if you want it, those of you out there who are listening if you want to get into hollywood if you want to get in the traditional way you have to play by the system's rules i'm sorry there's just no other way for you there are ways that you can there are multiple ways to skin the save the cat but like, you know, there at the same time, you still gotta use Save the Cat. You know what I mean? There is there's no getting around the rules. One of the rules is your script should never be up at 120 pages. Let alone 140 yeah. or 160. This person yeah. was trying to talk about the nickel as you know, the nickel lets 160 page scripts. I'm like, great, but the nickel is not the industry. 
You know what I mean? When's the last time a script that was 160 pages won the nickel? Riddle me that, Batman. That's not happening. That doesn't and, happen. And a lot of screenwriting contests allow for that. And they will give it to a reader. Like, I remember when I read for Austin, I had some 140, 150 page scripts sent to me. And you and know what they did? They charged that person for that, too. They, they charged them for, for the, the extra. extra they charged them for the extra. And also, when I'm a reader, I'm saying, sitting there, when you give me a 150 page script, I'm like, okay, if you're going to take more of my time, I expect more of you. A lot right. more. And so what you're really doing when you throw that guy in front of a reader is saying, I better be the best 150 page script ever written in order to make this worth my time. Not right. if you gave me a hundred pager and you were like, oh, it's OK, it's pretty good. I'd be like, all right, but you fit the format. You understand the rules. I, I'm not going to say I'd be easier on you, but I'd be like, OK, this person gets it. If you send me 150, it better be amazing. I'm asking right. for social network too, nothing less. Yeah, and that gets into the second part of it. Now, like I said, the system don't change for you because like I even Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin and Christopher Nolan by his own admission recently was, was on the Script Notes podcast with John August. And he was talking about even he was trying to make sure that the script came out to a certain page count because even with his, all of his power and knowing that Hollywood wants, you know, the kind of power that Chris Nolan has, people dream about. He's got Final Cut. His movies are over three hours long. And you know what I mean? He's able to do all kinds of things that the rest of us can only dream of. But even he was like, I better write this in a way so that it needs to be under a certain page count so that someone doesn't think that this script is too long. And he writes the longest screenplays out of anybody. Besides maybe Sorkin and e like yeah. even in these things, Sorkin and Nolan both have to justify their page counts. They're at the top of the top of the business. Yeah. And you mean to tell me that those people who are worried about their page count, but you're somehow special when your movies have never made a billion dollars. Okay. Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Chris Nolan's movies combined have are worth several billion dollars. That's why yeah. he gets to write 200 page scripts. Yeah. And also, you, if you look at his first movie, the following, guess how long the screen runtime is? 90 pages, 90, 90 minutes or 95 minutes, I think. Less. Oh, right. It's 89 minutes. It's 70 minutes. Wow. And and what? so I think what's happening is like I, I made a comment on screenwriting Twitter. I'm like, who's arguing for long page counts? And somebody said Scorsese. And I'm like, yes, once you're Scorsese, you have an audience that will watch you watch paint dry because they think you're so great. And maybe that's something you want to make them do. Maybe it's not. But you got to look at these people's first movie. What was their right. first entrance in the Hollywood? And you'll find most of them were adhering to smaller runtimes because it has to do with budget. Right. You know, it's a smaller risk at a smaller budget, a lower impact reservation, reservoir, reservoir dogs, you know, for example, for Tarantino is one, mostly one location, you know, things like that, where now he can run around and do whatever he wants. Right. The rules don't change for you. They don't. So if you want inside the system, if you want to tell movies the Hollywood way with Hollywood money, it is it is gross to suddenly think that the rules would change just for you because you're so awesome, you're so precious. It's like, I'm so good, Hollywood. You don't even know how good I am. 
give me millions of dollars and let me write scripts as long as I want because I'm going to write the best movies that you've never seen. Okay, sure. But also, me, I, I just want to throw this in here again to just bring the ease. Scorsese's debut was Who's Knocking at My Door in the 60s and it was 87 minutes. Yep. yep. So, so I'm oh, sorry, 86 minutes. Sorry, guys. So my point being is especially if you're it's your first project and whatnot go short right if you're an unproven entity that's the only way you're getting on these guys radar most of us if if you know anything about the business we are coming up out of the trenches of the independent never forget that john wick was an independent movie before it signed keanu reeves it was coming up out of the independent movies one of the biggest franchises on the planet Came up out of independent. The guy, Derek Coltstad, who wrote it, he'd written several other direct-to-video movies before that. He came up out of the independent too. Like that's yeah. and now he's big time. But he's coming up out of the trenches. That's how this stuff works, you guys. And the reason that they do it is because they know that people like them can adapt and that they can write movies that are short enough to be shot and limited with limited budgets on limited time with stars that they pay for five days of work or less two days of work so that they One can day. put them yeah. on the cover and then everybody else gets to work around them and these movies aren't you know 150 minute movies they're 90 minute features that don't overstay their welcome same thing with rom-coms these little hallmark rom-coms and stuff like they aren't super super long you know what the formula is there's a nine act structure that gets you to do it and they don't even get the script up to like like super great they just get it to working shape and then figure it out on set you you if you listen to this podcast you've heard the stories from other people you know how this works the rules don't change i can't emphasize this enough there are only so many studios or places that can handle a 150 page epic movie in this town that's true especially you know, but if you write a tight, not let's just say 90 page script, you know, movie to feature VOD or whatever, there are tons of companies out there that have the budget and the capacity to take take those movies on. There are so many more people you can reach out to when you write something that is something more people can make. The the argument that this person was putting up is that, you know, their their 180 page epic might cost less than someone else's 90 page you know other you know other film and that's of course that's going to be true if, depending on what it is you know a 180 page character drama you know is not going to be it's not going to cost the same amount as a 90 page you know jj abrams star trek kind of epic you know what i mean it's yeah. not going to be it's not going to be the same adventure thing. or something like that yeah. right Obviously, that's going to be true. But at the same time, though, you, you're not even getting into that. People are thinking about days on set. And we all know that people, they, the whole thing runs on how many pages per day. Like that is, a, that's a currency in Hollywood. How many day, pages we're making per day. The way that we shoot television shows. Their whole, you know, thing, like we, especially like network shows. How many pages can you shoot in a day? so that we can get the shot in five to seven days. It's the same way on independent as it is on high budget stuff. And, you know, you might be able to get away with that kind of stuff and maybe like at a, at a Kevin Feige level, 
where they're, yeah. you know, something like that. But, I, you know, that kind of stuff is is foreign to us all. Like the way that they do stuff is is not even, and you're not getting there. They don't hire the first timers to do that kind of stuff. Name one. They don't have one. They just don't do it because you don't have the experience. And the 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 bank of the studio doesn't have any confidence on in, in first timers being able to do something like that. That's not you. If no, that'd be like walking to the bank and saying, I want a home loan and you have no collateral. They'd be right. like, why you? And you're like, because I want one. <laughs> exactly. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to work up to that. So if you're playing by the Hollywood system, so if you want to do it, and I'll, I said this online, if you feel like that's you know what you want to do, go ahead and put your money where your mouth is. Go make that 180 page uh, epic yourself. You want to prove to Hollywood that you know that they're that they're sleeping on your talents, that people should show you know yeah. they would rue the day that they you know bought one of your or just passed on one of your you know one hundred and eighty page epics. Go ahead and put yourself out there, but I guarantee you it's going to be an expensive proposition. You know what I mean? Just try it, try it. Yeah. Go ahead, put your money where your mouth is. Stand up and do it. But you don't want to do that. You want to play for the system. You want the system to change for you. It doesn't work that way. Well, there we go. Let's move on to our interview with Denise Cruz Castino. Yes. And then we'll come back and hit you guys up with what Kate Tuxford and I are writing consuming things this week. Okay. Well, yeah. So we have Denise Cruz Castino. Oh, am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. So we have her here. She's going to talk about her writing her movie Five Weddings, which went to Cannes. And the first thing we always do when we have a guest on the show is we ask, how did you get into this business that we call show? That's a great question. So for me, I was working on becoming an advertising copywriter, and that's still what I do in the day. And I had found the Artist's Way book, which so many of us have read. And that book was amazing. I love it. If you haven't read it, not you guys, but the people listening, please get it. Um, we'll put a link one, in the, to it in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah. And so one of the sections said, all advertising copywriters really want to be screenwriters. And I said, we do. <laughs> and so I thought, well, gosh, I better take a screenwriting class. So that was kind of what led me there. And I took UCLA extension and my very first class, it was like the heavens parted. And it was just like, I just knew I had found my calling and I just never looked back. Okay, Tuxford, you had a similar sort of situation where didn't you take your screenwriting course just sort of like on a whim to satisfy a credit? Yeah, I had I had, I had an English capstone course and I thought I was entering a short story class and they said, no, it's a screenwriting class. But it was a really good time, like the hour-wise was good for my schedule. And it was the classroom with the really comfy chairs. So I was like, all <laughs> right, I'll learn screenwriting. And now look at me. Yeah. yeah. The See, chairs sort of like, got you. The chairs got me. <laughs> my parents are like, curse those chairs. Yeah. I'm sort of the weirdo of the group where, like, I discover screenwriting kind of like, you know, like someone who picks up a Bible in a post-apocalyptic wasteland and then it's like what is this <laughs> and then like just becomes this person who's just like devout having read all of the things and it's like have you heard about this bible it's great um, have you heard the good word of sid field yeah <laughs> so you're you just trying to convert everyone um <laughs> like are you in did you sort of just like fall in love with the format of screenwriting like the 
I think I fell in love with the storytelling and I always loved watching TV shows and movies. Mm -hmm. And I always loved reading books as a kid. And I wrote my first play when I was eight. So, yeah. So like when I looked back, I went, oh, that probably was a sign that that was something I should have done. But I didn't know it was a career like I didn't even know people went to film school. I went to UCLA and I would pass the like film department and I didn't even like, I thought they were just like studying to be actors. I didn't even know they were like film majors. Like it just, I think like, oh, I was so close, but you know, I figure we're all on our own paths for a reason. And then maybe I wasn't supposed to just be film major. I was a psychology major. So obviously psychology is good for film too. Yeah. So, but I don't know. I, I, I'm envious of the people that went to film school as their undergrad degree. Yeah, I sort of discovered screenwriting like that and was just like, wait, they write these things? Mm-hmm. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I thought that, thought that everybody just sort of made it up like SNL style, like they were sort mm-hmm. of like cue cards or whatever like mm-hmm. that. They but they even write them. that too, Rob. They write <laughs> I, that. I know. <laughs> Who knows these things? I didn't. Um, I didn't. Yeah. So that's great though. Uh, well, from there, you sort of, you got into it and then you... Like how what did you how did your journey like progress? Do you just like devour everything about screenwriting and then you just sort of yeah. start meeting people? Like Yeah, and even in my UCLA class, the extension class, um, I think we formed a writing group. So I think that oh, okay. you know people always say, get in a writing group, and that really helped. And I've been in so many along the way, but each writing group has gotten me better and stronger and closer to where I was gonna be. And then one of my writing groups in Malibu, that one of those friends is one of the friends that introduced me to the person that produced and directed five weddings so it's just you know that's why you have to sort of just be on this journey and this trajectory and just see what doors open and that's why you know people always ask like what what's the story how do, how do you make this happen and it's like you just keep writing and meeting people that's what I always tell people just keep writing and meeting people because you just don't know what's going to open a door for you yeah I tell my I tell my students so I, I teach part-time at Chapman now and mm-hmm. um undergrads uh, I also I was not a film major for my undergrad either because I didn't know that's a thing mm-hmm. um so very sympathetic uh, <laughs> but they figured it out and they're in my class now which is g- good for them already shows promise and I always tell them you kind of have to make like a tree and put your branches in every direction because you don't know where the sunlight's gonna hit mm-hmm. that's, that's good. my I like that. yeah I like nice. that yeah, thank you. Thank that's you. That's very, that's very profound, Kate Tuskman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, like, I, I don't know. I, I definitely think, you know, that it goes back to that old adage, like, you know, like, what is it? 95% of life is just showing up or something like that. Mm. And I remember, like, getting my first general off of mm. the fact that I had met this director through our, our locations manager, where we were mm. shooting a movie at the same time in mm. the same area. And the locations manager sort of introduced us. And then later on, that relationship would blossom into my first general. And mm. so like that, you know, it just is just doing like doing the work, just going out there mm. and putting yourself out there and not even showing up. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a networking kind of way, just like yeah. you're. So let me ask you. So you you started on sets then, because that's another way in, too, which I sort of mm-hmm. wish I had done that, too. But, you know, I, I didn't. And I have a career in another path. So. It's kind of too late but so you started on sets and that's a way to like you said meet people oh yeah i i do i i fell into like the most backwards of 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 scenarios just being on sets like i remember signing up for background casting mm. and i you know they sent me this uh notice they were just like hey you have the same measurements as one of our actors can you come on uh set 
we're going to set you up and, you know, you're going to take pictures in the actor's wardrobe and they're going to put his face over your face. And I was like, okay, cool, bet, right on. So I showed up and the, the AD who was on set actually happened to be the mother of one of these, of uh, the, the women, uh, this woman I went to school with and She's like, oh yeah, uh, hey Rob, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm glad to see you. Like, oh, da, da. so I felt like I had an ally on set, and so mm. she's leading me around and showing me the things. She's like, oh, let me introduce you to the director, and she comes over and she's just like, hey Chris, and I like Chris Rock turns around and I'm like, oh my god, like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> wow, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> like when you meet your heroes and you're not one of one of your heroes and you're not expecting it like it's just like oh okay that's oh wow okay that's Chris Rock yes no <laughs> they're like yeah no Chris is gonna be taking pictures with you today and you're gonna put be in Bernie Mac's wardrobe and then we're gonna paste Bernie's face over your face and I was like I don't what well okay I, is this am, am I being punked seriously <laughs> what is happening right now and they're like no we are literally gonna take your face right. away and pose and put someone else's face over right. it but like we're we just literally just want you, you like for this. your body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to use you for your body in this fantasy scenario where you meet one of your heroes. Try better. You to be didn't one of your other know heroes. that you were going to be standing with Chris Rock doing that. I did not. Because you would have probably been nervous leading up to that. So this should be right. Whatever, I'm background. Okay, fine. Like, And then you meet Chris Rock. <laughs> right. Because they don't tell you anything. You're just like, oh, okay. So so let's, let's go. I mean, the, our listeners have heard us for years now yeah. they're tired of us let's talk about denise <laughs> so talk to us about five rep weddings i'm really excited that you have this because it's a bollywood rom-com hybrid <laughs> and rob is our he loves rom-coms he is got a, a big soft squishy middle that just is beats for rom-coms so <laughs> tell, us, tell us about the premise and how you came up with it so i okay so i'm going to backtrack a little bit so i had before this writing group, I had traveled around the world for about a year mm -hmm. through Asia and Africa. So one of my scripts that I wrote when I came back was about something that happened to me in India. Ooh. And so I had a whole script and it was an action thriller kind of drug thing type thing. And so my friend in the writing group, Andy Glickman, who ends up getting a writing credit with me for five winnings, he was like, hey, I know someone who wants to produce a movie that's set in India. Would you be interested in I can send your script? Because she's looking for people who know the culture. And I was like, sure. So that was kind of how I got introduced to Naomi. And so then she read it and she said, oh, I really love, I feel like you understand the culture and I feel like you could write this script for me. Are you interested? So she came to me with the idea. And so the original idea was just, if I recall, an Indian woman that's from America. So born and raised in America. Mm -hmm. She works in fashion and she has to go cover some weddings in India, but she knows nothing about her culture. So it's like total fish out of water. She doesn't want to be there. She's in designer clothes. And if you've ever been to India, it is like, like you know, like some of the cities now are very like big cities and they're, you know, maybe you would think they're in LA or America. Or whatever. Sometimes not. But yeah. She gets, sometimes not. And so she gets thrown into this city where she's just like, whoa, what the heck is this? So that was kind of how the premise came in. So she just came with me, like gets stuck in India, stuck with a, a policeman. They have to escort her around to make sure she's covering stories that India is okay with. And he's very Indian. And he's like, you're an American rich girl snob. And so the two of them, of course, don't like each other. And then of course, fall in love. So that was basically the idea. And then I had to like, fill in all the rest, but that's kind of the idea that she started with. 
And yeah. did you get a chance when you were traveling or for this to go to some Indian weddings at all and kind of I didn't. No, she didn't. It's an indie. So she didn't really have the budget for that. So it was just sort of, you know, you've been in India. I spent a month in India when I wrote the script. So she's kind of like, you've been. So do research. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I only I only ask because one of my uh, dear friends is Indian and I went to her wedding. And when mm. I saw your premise, I was like, it's brilliant because yeah. the wedding goes for days. For and days. days. Yeah. Days. So I just did a ton yeah. of research on the weddings yeah. and and I loved it. And, you know, after being in India, there's just so much beauty there and loved all the Bollywood stuff. And, you know, for a couple of days in Nepal, my friend and I were stuck in Nepal. And so we did nothing but watch Bollywood movies for like three days straight. So nice. like, I would like love the songs. Like if I hear a Bollywood song come on, I'm like, yeah, cool. Like I, <laughs> yeah, I like, I love it. And like when we were in India, like there was this one song that was really popular from a Bollywood song and we would know it. And like, you know, like we were in a rickshaw and maybe like the the driver would be singing. We'd be like, yeah, we'd be singing it with them. Like I got I got into it. I loved the music. So it was kind of a fun thing for me to actually explore. That That's kind of cool. Stuff. Yeah. So what I love about Bollywood movies is that like in America, in America, we're so like staunchly like we can't handle anything like we had to have a whole like Marvel phase four for the country to sort of collectively understand multiverse. And now, like, now everybody wants to do it. Like, ooh, like, the concept of a multiverse is not... Like, it, multiverses have been around. If you've been a Stephen King fan, then you're a multiverse fan. You know mm. what I mean? But now, like, the country has a, a collective uh, lexicon of which they can sort of put it up against. But, like, that's not a thing in Bollywood movies where they're, like... What like you know what would make this action scene great? A dance sequence, like in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, they I know. Can't I can't handle it. that. Someone starts dancing in the middle of Shang Chi. They don't know. They don't understand it. They don't understand. Okay, what's first of all, now. I would love that. Right, we all would love it. But Him and Aquafina. Yeah, yeah. No, I love uh, it. But, love well, it. I think I think it's like it's it's expect not expected, but it's like okay, you made a movie. Where's where's my dance? You know, <laughs> right? Well, and the sad thing is that I had a big Bollywood dance scene at the end of this movie, and she didn't, she couldn't afford it. She didn't say oh. that, and it wasn't in there. And so I was so sad. I wrote in a big Holly, a Bollywood dance scene, like it's a Bollywood movie, so. It happened. Hey, hey, don't hold that again. I mean, that's not. I know. A, Look, it's budget. I'm not paying for it. She was, but I was yeah. like, "Where's my Bollywood dancing?" <laughs> You'll get yes. there. You'll I'll have your there. chance. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, she does the writer's cut, and there's just a big dancing. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Damien Chazelle is going to see five weddings and come in and offer you a chance to like do like a like a much bigger version of it. That's, it'll be a whole thing. That would be nice. Um, <laughs> but there'll be more jazz. It'll be really awkward in that way. Um, he does love jazz. He loves jazz. Mm -hmm. So I think the other thing we were kind of wanted to know is obviously your genre that you started with was more of a thriller, an Indian thriller. And your other projects are a little bit more on the horror genre side of things. So how do you kind of balance that? Do you feel like work-wise people still come to you for rom-coms? Or do you feel like you can kind well, of... Yeah, it's a good question. It's funny because when I started with all my writing, I was writing rom-coms. That's what I loved. And so mm. it was kind of perfect that she wanted me to write one because I love rom-coms. I do. But they went out of fashion, right? So it kind of became like, but I love comedies. Yeah. So then I started really just writing comedies. And then the whole horror thing was totally by accident. Like, Really? Yeah. Like, because I, I, you know, 
kudos to all you horror writers, but they scare me. And I know people like that, <laughs> but I don't like being scared. Like I like laughing. So that's why I write comedies. But what happened was I had sold a short to Disney. So with the same friend, Andy Glickman, I had written a short before five weddings happened. And I wrote a short and I sent it to him. I said, Hey, I don't know why. I don't know why I wrote it. I just felt like writing one. I'm like, Hey, take a look at this. Let me know what you think. He's like, it's really good. He's like, would you want to pitch shorts to Disney? Like that was his response. And I'm like, um, yeah. yeah. We, I think we all need a friend like Andy Glickman. And that's what I've, I've learned from this. I know, Andy Glickman's right? going to get a bunch of calls after this I podcast. I know. He should. He's so talented. I'm, I'm shouting out Andy Glickman. And, um, and so I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, cause I have a friend that they're looking for, you know, shorts. This was a while ago, 2008, maybe. And so, um, we were like one of like 20 teams that got to pitch shorts to Disney. They were live action and they wanted to compete with Pixar's animation. And mm. so they wanted to put them like it before, like, like the movie so that they could enter them into the Oscars, you know, cause they have the live action. Oh, that's so that was they what they were that. hoping to do. That's what they're hoping to do. And then our short, so we were three of 20 people that teams, three of 20 teams that are sold. And we were the only team that didn't have representation at the time. So I was like, yeah, look at us. Right. So that was kind of cool. But then Disney, since they're such a big conglomerate, they were like, oh, we have a couple feature films that are just like this. We're not going to make it. So it didn't get made. And then that department went away because 2008 economy was bad. That whole department went away. So meanwhile, one of the producers, he used to do horror shorts and horror films. So I reached out to him and was like, hey, what are you up to? He's like, oh, I'm producing horror shorts again. Do you have any? Which I didn't. But another lesson is always say yes. So I said, yes, just a second. <laughs> Reached out to a couple of friends that I know that wrote thrillers because I figured that was at least close to him. Like, let's come up with something. So he liked a couple of them. And then so we wrote a couple. And then that department ran out of money. He's like, oh, my director just produced everything. We have no more money. So meanwhile, I had two horror shorts. So then mm -hmm. someone on stage 32 reached out to me and said, hey, do you have any shorts I can look at? And I'm like, sure. And then he liked one and then he directed it. So it was like, because I had just, again, just write stuff because I had written something that opened a door and I reached out to yeah. a friend and that opened a door. And then, so it's like, you kind of just have to, like I always tell people, just keep writing stuff. So that happened. And then I was in on the page podcast. That's Hello. Yes. I don't know if she listens to us, but we love her. Yeah. yeah maybe she will because we're speaking her name. Yeah. It's sort of like Beetlejuice. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had been on her podcast. And then one of the writers that was on there, I think it's pronounced Audra Walden, if I'm correct. And she, so we got to know each other from being, we were on the podcast twice. And she had reached out to me and said, hey, not just me, a couple writers that she knew, do you guys want to write any animation shorts for children? And of course, it was animation horror. It was going to be for Halloween. And I was like, yes. And so she was like, we only need one from all of you. But I, because I work in advertising, I don't know how to write one of anything. So I'm like, <laughs> 10, right? Like, because you just don't know what people want. Right. And so then they bought and made two of mine. So Again, it was sort of by accident. It was just, you know, but again, it's like, are you writing? Are you reaching out to people? Are you making friends? Are you keeping in touch with these people? You know, and that it just, it just kind of opens other doors. So 
that was I think I think that's a good lesson in hustle because I think a lot of times uh, you know we have a lot of like newer writers who listen to this podcast and they're kind of getting their their feet wet still and I think a lot of times when you hear hustle they think oh I got to send out like 50 query letters to Steven Spielberg but the hustle is really more the nitty-gritty of what you're doing which is you're like you're putting yourself out there you're making new material you're talking at material, you're finding what the people around you need, and mm-hmm. then you're helping them get what they need as well, because people are going to take a better ch- chance on you if you're helping them take the next step too, right. you know? Right. And I think, I think people, sometimes they, they look too far ahead instead of, well, what's the next step? Oh, I need a short. Who needs a short, you know, mm-hmm. type of short. So sometimes it's good to kind of think of these little increments along the way. And yeah. that's really the hustle is the one foot in front of the other. Well, yeah, I also think yeah, that yeah. not to cut you off, Denise, but oh, no, uh, okay. I, I but always, you did, I always, but you did, but you did. <laughs> I did. That's no, okay. I apologize, <laughs> but I also think you know there's something there's a lot of something that is to hustling around those are the the, the people who you're coming up with, like in mm-hmm. your sort of class, because they recognize like game recognizes game, and when you when someone else gets their shot, you know when they want to go to the show. Who are they going to like ask for? They're not going to ask for the people who like screw around. They're going to ask for the people who know they're going to like bust their ass because everybody's like going to recognize the fact that it's their shop. Like that's who I want to be in the trenches with is the person who knows like we're not going to screw this up because we can't. We can't afford to do this. Like we can't afford to mess this up. And so that's why when, you know, they used to give the advice of like, you know, when you see these people who are receptionists or, you know, people at agencies Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Like. Like mm-hmm. recognize those folks mm-hmm. because when they they're they're on their own grind and when they get to be where they want to be they're going to be the people who remember you like that that guy was the guy who's like whose work I liked who I saw they had a kind of hustle and they were nice to me and I'm mm-hmm. going to work with that person rather than calling some you know someone who couldn't remember their name and who right. fucks off like no, it's true yeah mm-hmm. so for me mm-hmm. like the the idea like. We all want to, I think we all want someone to elevate us, but really the biggest boosts are going to come from the people who are on our level, who are willing to give us a leg up because it gives them a leg up. No, it's so true. It's about like you're, you're with your peers, help each other and then lift each other up. And as one as you go, goes up, hopefully they'll help you when you go up, help them. And it's like, you know, it's absolutely the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously that's like the dream of it, but like, you know, most of us are like at this level where it's like, we're going to just keep moving up together, hopefully, you know, and the same thing with the reception and stuff. Like I've done that when I've had like meetings with big producers. And then when I'm in the lobby, you know, their waiting room, I'm like chatting up the, you know, their assistants and I'm like, Hey, how, what are you watching? How was your weekend? Oh, Oh, you watched the sport. What sport? Oh, how did your team do? And then, and then you remember that. And then it's like, I've made relationships with people like that who mm-hmm. have gone on to produce stuff and then we'll meet for, for drinks or coffee or, yeah. you know, cause you just never know. You just never know. And again, you never know, even if you don't work with them, you don't know someone might want to work with you and then know them. Yeah. Right. I right? run into a lot of that, which is it turns out we have the same mutual. And I'm like, oh, my God, I met them back in da, da, da. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. found out apparently one time in Japan, two people met that knew me. And yeah, that's crazy. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, you're doing a good job of networking yeah. people in Japan. Shout out to Daryl Wharton Rigby <laughs> and David Hall Chester, who wound up in a writing group together in Japan. And they were wow. like, we both know Kay Tuxford and we love her. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's and amazing. That, that's, that's what you want to do about yeah. those people you're associating with. Okay. Since you are a rom-com aficionado and so is Rob here, I got to throw this question out, which is like, I'm not going to make you pick your favorite, but like, what's a top rom-com for you that kind of like shaped your love of rom-coms? Oh, that is a hard one. I've never been kissed. Okay. Ooh. Awesome. That's a good one. Music and lyrics. Very cute. I'm noticing a trend. Drew. I guess it's true, right? Drew. Yeah. So yeah, I think those are two of my favorites. I just rewatched Love Actually, and I hadn't watched it in a long time. I loved it. There definitely were some things that I was like, hmm, is some of this still okay? <laughs> but other than that, it just made me feel good. So, and I loved Wedding Crashers. That's considered like a, a rom com. Oh, I love so it. Good. Yeah. So that's so kind of like, I think that's kind of like my goal is to write that kind of stuff, which is like the rom com, but you don't really know it's a rom com. And it's just really funny. So, um, yeah. But Wedding Crashers hits like all the rom com beats. It does. Um, yeah. I mean, even yeah. a rival suitor, Bradley Cooper showing up in the middle, yeah. like yeah. all of that stuff. I'm like, oh, I it's, always it's, forget he's in that movie, but he's twice. The I know. Guy. Yeah. Because yeah. it was before yeah. I think he was huge, but he was so good in that. You know, Denise, yeah. I think we're at odds because you're a you were a Drew and Adam Sandler, and I'm a Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler. You know I love Jennifer and her rom coms too. Which ones are your favorites? Well, no, I'm talking about because Drew has done a couple of different, oh, a few different uh, rom coms with Adam Sandler specifically, like Fifty First Dates, mm -hmm, which I love then, Fifty First Dates too. Yeah, and for me, like my favorite Adam Sandler rom coms are the ones that he does with Jennifer Aniston. Like mm -hmm. I love Just Go with it, Just and Go with it, Murder, Murder. What is it? Uh, no, is it uh, Mystery? The stuff, the stuff on Netflix? Yeah, the Mystery. Those are good. Movies. I like those. Yeah, I yeah, like I, yeah, but Just Go With It, I think, is one of the best rom-coms of all time. I, and I know that. I really it's, love it's, it. It's a remake of another movie, but okay, it's... Okay, now it's, I need to look it up, because how do I not know this? Maybe I think I think they're pretending... It's one of those classic, we're pretending to be a couple, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, along the way of pretend, as as does the format, they get they catch feelings. <laughs> oh, I do know that one. That one's very cute. I love yeah, that. Yeah, that movie very for me, like I I was not expecting it because it, it comes out of nowhere. Like you wouldn't expect Sandler to have this like instant chemistry with Jennifer Aniston, but the two like she just keeps him grounded in a way mm -hmm, that like mm -hmm. I feel like some of his other movies like you know where it just they just fly off into the stratosphere and you're just like wow like some of them are you know work obviously like the classic ones but like she keeps him with his feet on the ground and they mm -hmm. have this instant chemistry mm -hmm. and i have to think like his wife is just like pissed and she's like oh <laughs> you're gonna do like another movie with jennifer oh are you are you i think she's probably sitting there in a really nice coat and eating sushi you know it's the golden chops just saying go have fun right you know? exactly, exactly i think she knows who she married <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly and at the end of the day probably is like jennifer i need a break for a month or two and you, take my husband. <laughs> you take him and i'll appreciate him when he comes back mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. i'm sure it's fine i i grew up on i guess i'm very 90s rom-com i grew up on like sliding doors which you know that mm -hmm. that makes and then obviously while you were sleeping with sandra Bullock and love Bell. while you're yes. sleeping. Wow. Love. Yes. That's a great yes. one. Deep yes. cut right there. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. Why? See, did I did I make you realize you're old? 
No, 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 no. I just saw it. I was just like, wow, while you were sleeping. Wow. Because I like I am old yeah. enough so that I remember like literally the commercials that used to come on for that movie. And I remember it's like, I'm not going to see that. Like, like that. And now you're watching it and you're like, oh, my God. I know. I never gave it a chance. <laughs> I need Sandy to watch Bullock. it again. I need to watch it again. I love Sandy Bullock. Yeah. I think my favorite. Well, my, my favorite rom-com is obviously like when Harry met Sally, because that's just that. I mean, that's just the goat. You have yeah. to. Yeah. But that, so that's one. Yes, that one's amazing. But like saying it almost seems like so obvious. Yeah, it's like the Citizen Because everyone loves it, right? You know yeah, I mean? it sort is. Of... So yeah. So it's kind of like that's just like expected. Yeah. yeah. It's, but, but it is me, great. It's I great. Always, I feel like you should watch Casablanca and then When Harry Met Sally because they watch mm. Casablanca. So I've always oh, paired them together. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like for me, I think uh, like one of the movies that I feel like is like secretly a rom-com kind of is Speed. It feels okay. like a rom com where you're watching okay. it because okay. you you. I mean, meet... there's there's a lot of like pulse racing, adrenaline rush there. It's not like they have the ah, oh, I gotta open up and expose my weaknesses, and this person's attractive, and I don't no, know. No, they I feel do about though. No, that's but, yeah, not but even like, true. There's, there's there's like a there's like a bigger issue going on there. No, but they still have to like get to know. They have to trust each other because he has yes. to trust her to drive the bus. And she has to trust them to get them out of the situation entirely. And they had this this situation where they learn to rely on each other, where like they're literally driving the bus. He's driving the bus in terms of like how to manage people and what the situation is and keeping up with the terrorists. And she's literally driving the bus and keeping them safe. She has this very physical job of like keeping this bus on the road and also letting him know like, oh God, we're gonna, hey, we're gonna crash. Or, hey, you know, like she literally, there's that moment where she goes, we're going to tip over. And he goes, no, we're going to, no, he goes, no, you're right. We're going to tip over. You know what I mean? But like, that's her job is to <laughs> realize what's going on. Like they're driving that bus. It's not, she's driving that bus. They are driving that bus. Like they are having a child. And I just, I feel like okay. you get all the romantic com comedy beats, like all the way through it. It, it. it it literally ends in like the two of them in their arms. It literally ends like that. Are you kidding me? It's great. It's great. Okay, I I believe you. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I don't. I feel like Rob, you're you're fighting some invisible foes here. Uh, <laughs> who knew I, you had such passion for this? Okay. I do. I love speed. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> all right, Denise. I just want to ask you since a lot of our our listeners are new screenwriters, they're getting their feet wet. They were basically where all of us were at one point. What's your advice to them? We talked about a little bit kind of about networking, but like, what would you say for a writer who's maybe only written a screenplay or two, they're still starting out. What, what do you think they, they should set their eyes on as the next step? Well, you know, like we've already mentioned, make sure you're in a writing group because you got to get feedback on what you're writing and you got to build those those relationships. So make sure you're in a writing group. If you don't have one, I'm assuming they found you guys to Twitter. So there's obviously people out there that will create writing groups. There's people if you just shout who needs a writing group, who wants to create a writing group, do, you know, do a meetup, you know, make mm -hmm. sure you're in a writing group and then always keep writing scripts, always keep writing scripts because it's amazing. Like, I know some people that they'll be like, I have these two scripts and that's all I have and I'm never going to write anything else. And then they don't sell them. And it's like, you can't, you can't stop. And again, you grow as a writer, right? Like if we think back to our first scripts. I don't, Ooh. I right? that out. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't even show anybody that. So it's like, you know, and people will be like, how many scripts have you written? I can't even give a number anymore because I've lost track because some of the early ones are on an old computer 
that I'll probably never look at because like those don't count. Those were the ones that taught me how to write <laughs> format, but like, I'm not going to show anybody those. And I did back then, but now like I act like I have maybe like six scripts. Have I written scripts like more than that? Oh my God. I can't even think of how many scripts I've written. So, you know, that's what I would say is just always keep writing, always keep growing, always keep reading scripts, always keep watching movies in your genre and analyzing them. And, you know, I think of how many times I would watch rom-coms and I would just take notes through the whole thing. And did they hit the beats and how did they do it differently? Because if you just do things that hit the beats, it's too formulaic. So what are we going to do to make our story different? So I feel like as a screenwriter, you just have to constantly be, constantly be learning, constantly be growing. And then also, you know, they say, go make stuff. So I'm hoping to create, to direct my first short in the new year. That's yes. That's the plan. That's the hope. And yes, yes, yes. So it's like, they always say make stuff, right? So find people that want to make stuff with you. You know, we talked about having your team of people at your level, find people that can do that with you, you know, so make stuff, get it out there. You know, I haven't done it yet, but get it in a film festival. That's what I'm hoping because it's like, you know, I always hear be a multi-hyphenate, which I have not done. So this will be my first time to be something other than just a writer. I have produced a short when I, I did stuff for women in film. So I wrote something and then I ended up being one of the producers, which was totally by accident. So I don't really put that as a credit, but I have helped produce something. But um, you've, hey, if you've helped produce something, you've helped produce something. I know I know. should put it on my resume, right? Like yes. it was totally by accident, but like apparently I... Half of producing is by accident. Don't worry. I, I guess that's what it was like, but I was just supposed to be the writer and then I was going to maybe be like a PA or something. And then it turned out that other people, because everyone works, right? So it turned out everyone was too busy to do any producing, but the main producer. And so uh, things were falling through the cracks. So it turns out I'm a, a, a control freak and I didn't know that. And I was like, well, why isn't anyone doing this? And why isn't anyone doing that? And so I just sort of took on like everything with the producer. And he's like, by the way, you're really good at producing. You should do this. I was like, I didn't sleep the whole week before our, our production. <laughs> I was so stressed. I would wake up in the middle of the night like, oh, did we? I'd be like, oh, yeah, we have that. Like every single, like all, I'm like, oh, my God. Constant, did I leave the oven on syndrome? Like, Yes. Yeah. yes. I was like, who does this for a living? This is stressful. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I do, okay. I could see doing it again. I could, I could. I apparently have the personality for it. Just, you don't get sleep, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you have to plan. You can only produce so much a year and the rest is for sleeping. And this was my first time, right? Yeah. So maybe the next time I would know me way more. And I will say, everyone that was on our set worked in the industry and I heard someone pass another person go, this is the most well put together set we've ever been on. I was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that when people are like, I'll come back anytime. Whenever like I finish a set and they're like, let me know when you're doing something else. That's amazing. That's Producing always, a- that's always like, I, I like when I produce something or I AD something, I'm like, yeah, yeah, producing right. sort of yeah. yeah. starts it's out really- that way. Like you do that thing. It's like having a new baby, you know, that whole thing. You're like, are you going to die? Are you going to die? You're going to die. And then like, you know, you have that whole thing, but then eventually you become like, it's like An you've expert. had that, that third kid. When you've mm-hmm. got that dead eye stare and you just, you just kind of like nothing scares you. Like someone could come up to you with like with a knife in an alley and you're just like, what? Like I produce <laughs> movies, leave me alone. You know, it, like you get to I that point where you get a death call in the eye. and yeah. someone will like cancel on you like the day of your shoot and uh. you're just like, it's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. like I'll figure so guys, it out. You guys are experts at it. I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I'm, yeah, no, I still, I still panic. <laughs> 
But the one question I was going to ask you, which is kind of based on what you're just saying, is what are you working on next? So can you tell us, can you drop any info about your short or anything you're writing? Let's see. Or is it a secret? Uh, if it's a secret, we'll keep it a secret. Yeah, I don't want to say too much about the short, but what I, mm, yeah, I don't want to say too much. It's a female comedy, dramedy that I was inspired by watching, I think it's called, is it Promising Young Woman? I was listening to Emerald Fennell speak and it made me come up with this idea. She was, someone was interviewing her and I, and I came up with this and it's something that all women can relate to and get frustrated by. And so I found a way to make it like a dark comedy. Cause it's like, Oh my God. So I don't want to say too much. Cause once I say it, then it could be anyone could do it. But so I'm excited about okay. that. And then one of my features, I, again, I can't say too much, but we have a family comedy with a producer that's attached and a director. And it just went out to A-list talent. So waiting on that. So that's super exciting. And then had a big meeting. Big. We met. It was a meeting. But with a very exciting executive producer, someone that's on my like dream vision board. And he <laughs> sent two of my scripts to his team. And then asked for another script. And then he's like, hey, how about this idea that he wants us to work on? So we're starting to work on that with him. Nice. So yeah, so it's really exciting. And I have a really big female friendship comedy that I've written outline for. And I've, I'm ready to start writing the script soon, I think. So again, I don't want to say too much because once you say the title, it's such a, you know, like high concept, then everybody's going to know it. So yes, I'm so it's an homage to female friendships. So it's kind of like a rom-com but for female friendships okay i'm down for that i feel I know, like right so yeah. like fried green tomatoes i feel like that's like it no but that's i mean that's like that's a, more serious mine's more yeah. like mine's like a bridesmaid's face yeah oh, okay yeah mine's like a bridesmaid so i'm excited to start that but i have a ton i have so many projects as i'm sure you guys do that are in all these different stages so it's like oh you know. yeah we it's, I, I look at it, i'm like i'm checking on my children i'm like how are y'all doing <laughs> right, uh, right, right. okay up up you turned yourself upside down let me rewrite you yeah um okay so we have two signature questions that we ask everyone we interview this is not to say you're not special but just so you know you're you're amongst <laughs> you're amongst the pantheon of our great interviewees now which is uh, Rob, do you want to ask the first one? You traditionally yeah, ask Yeah, I usually ask the first question because the second one it, it sort of brings out like a, a bit of contention between my co-host and myself. So <laughs> our, our first question is, Denise, do you, do you like writing? Do you like the actual writing of the writing? Like, is that a thing? That's a great question. I love writing. Like, I, like when people say they don't like writing, I'm, I'm, it, it kind of surprises me. Like, I love writing. I I am an outline person, which I know some people get like, ah, so I don't love that part, but I love when I get to write the very first fade in interior, blah, 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 blah. Cause I love starting to see that script form, you know, that gets just me just so excited. So I do love it. I, I you know, I just finished, I'm, uh, I'm on my second draft of a novel. Haven't found the love of writing novels yet, but I think I'm getting there. So right now screenplays and sitcoms, I love writing. Well, Rob, I think she already answered the she second did. question. She, but she for posterity's sake, question, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway because I want to hear it again. Which is, do you like to outline or do you write by the seat of your pants? I wrote by the seat of my pants when I first started, and I did that for years. And it would probably take me maybe 13 drafts to get where I get in the first draft now with an outline. So wow. 
I am a proponent of it. I know some people just want to blah, 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 and have fun. I get it. I'm not telling someone to change their style. But for me, like I just, the, the, the female comedy I'm going to be writing, I did two outlines that my writing group gave me notes on both of those. And already I am in such a strong position from two note, two rounds of notes on outlines. And I also feel like I'm not afraid to play in an outline, like tear things apart and like move things around more. Whereas for some reason, when it's on a script, I know we have to rewrite it. I get that. But for some reason, when it's a script, it's like, well, but Sally said that. I can't tell her not to say that. Now she's the one that said it. So for some reason, when it's a character and it's a setting, it just hurts more. So mm-hmm. when they tear that script apart. So for me, outlines, I just, I'm, I'm a proponent. I'm sold. I, I couldn't even do it the other way anymore. Team outline. That's that's all in for Kate talks. See for me, I, 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 think... I got my yeah. See my board. Yeah, I was like, I'm, it's pretty obvious. Rob, yes. it... and I'm not a note card person. Oh, I love yeah. I'm not. Cards. Yeah, when I and again because I don't have a space where I want to hang it, and so then it's just note cards everywhere, and so then I also don't like clutter. So I'm just like, okay, I'm not a note card person. Again, everyone has what works, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, I, I tried the note card thing, didn't work for me. I'm literally on the computer. It's and even people, some people handwrite stuff. I'm like, why are you using a pen and paper? Like, I like, I could never write a script that way. So, look, we See, all have our things. <laughs> I'm gonna change your life right now because, like, I used to be. I was. I'm the exact same way. Like, I the reason why I pants is because I write all of my first drafts by hand. But what I did mm. was, I found this thing called, and I'll send you a link to it. Okay. Um, I found this thing called the Vomit Draft Screenwriters Notebook, and. Mm. They literally have the notebook in screenplay format and you can just write everything in. It's got the margins and everything. You're right. So as if it is a screenplay. So you get to do that by hand. And Mm -hmm. what I love to do is I love to write. It gives you like 200 pages and Mm -hmm. I'll write like my first draft of my screenplay. Like I'll write it in the book. But then when I go back and like, as I'll rewrite, I'll literally go to the opposite page if I have to rewrite the whole page and I'll rewrite it on the other side and just like take apart what I wrote on the first mm. side so that I can do that. Kay Tuxford is a heathen who writes on both sides of the page and I don't understand that. It drives me crazy. <laughs> but like I am okay, but you get more page. I mean like no. I, my 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 book that I filled up had three different scripts in it by the time I was done because I believed in saving trees, Rob. Okay. But like, you know, that's how I get through like the idea. Cause then for me, it does feel free. Like I can break this apart Mm -hmm. at any time. Like the same way that we used to write in grade school of like, you know, you do it on the page and then you like rewrite it over and your teacher gives you notes and that kind of stuff. Like you can do that. And then you rewrite it on the computer. That to me, like that saves me like that, that ladder tree. Cause usually by the time I've gotten it to the computer, and then, you know, where someone can read it. And then I rewrite that. Like, mm. by the time it actually gets to readers, I've, I'm on, like, draft four. Like, mm. three three or four. It so, just seems, seems like a lot of work that could be solved with an outline. I'm just saying, Rob. It's a lot of damage. I know. Okay. Okay. Do I'm okay. the shuffle, okay. When the shuffle okay. could do. Yeah. I just, you know, it's the same thing. I feel like, you know, like, you know, everybody's doing, like, the you know, the kind of drafts and stuff like that. It's just that you are able to you know and i think you know the thing that i that how i get my script shorter is like if i go and i've already written the thing out sometimes i actually need to write 
a scene just to get it out of me. But then when I go to write it in the computer, I'm like, I don't need this. Let me or ask I don't you. I'm, cur it. I'm curious, <laughs> Rob. Do you cook or bake? Yes. I'm. I have a question. I don't know if this is this is. I'm coming for theory. I don't know if it's true. Do you follow recipes? Mostly. See, mm. that's what it is. See, because when I cook or bake, I follow it to a T. I think this is my theory. I just came up with this. Let's see if other people agree. And so I need a plan because I am afraid to stray outside of that recipe. And so you like the freedom, even when you're cooking, you're yeah, like, I don't even... this, I'm gonna... and I'm like, like my husband, like when he cooks something, he does, he's like, Oh, I just added extra garlic. I I'm like, you did? <laughs> like yeah. And then you like, taste it along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, that guy. I'm definitely job. that guy. And I'm like, not that person. I'm like, Oh, it better tell me, or I'm afraid to do this. So I think maybe that's why I like an outline. Cause I I'm creating parameters for me and again I don't have to stick to it when I write the script as Kay you know and other people yeah you have to stick to it but I need those guide posts I do I, I otherwise I'm like where am I going I have no idea what I'm writing see and I'm like I'll do like even like I discovered like those I was like scrambling eggs the other day and I was just like you know I used to I do the thing where I like you know I take the eggs and I like sort of cook them and then I'll put the milk and the cheese inside of the pan and I start cooking. But then I realized if I kept the temperature at a certain way and then like lowered it, I would, I'm able to like cook it in better. And I'm like, oh, look how fluffy these eggs are now. You know, like that's the type of person I am. And I'm like, all right, now what if I mess with this temperature? Mm. You know, like I'm I'm constantly trying to reinvent the wheel. So for me, it's just like the idea of like, what is there's a rest? No, I don't want it. I don't want it. Leave me alone cooking <laughs> you, can, you can also wind up sometimes with a big blob of runny uncooked or overcooked egg right, see, that's that what i'm afraid of see that's yeah. what i'm afraid of i want to be like when i'm done making a meal or done making a batch of cookies i want people to be able to eat them i've never been someone that's like i guess we're throwing this out and ordering pizza like like <laughs> some, someone made this for a reason they practiced they perfected that recipe so i'm like well you would know more than me and so I, I have a meal or dessert at the end. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thank you so much, Denise. We're going to jump into our next part of our segment, which is what are we watching, consuming and writing? Rob, what are you up to? Well, I, I have an addiction and that addiction's name is Veronica Mars. I, it is, let it out. Good. It's good to be honest with yourself. My name is Robert Hagens and I have a problem. I have, I have a Veronica Mars addiction. I can't deny it. It's it's pretty bad. I've watched two seasons, actually probably close to two and a half seasons of Veronica Mars, and I've read two books in the span of as many months. I'm starting to have Veronica Mars dreams. I'm actually <laughs> dreaming about Veronica Mars or, or being you, characters. You, Kirsten Bell, and backup running yeah, around. I yeah. just, I'm, you know, and it's really bad, but this world is something. This goes back to our our episode last week, where we talk about world building. And Veronica Mars has beyond the television show. There's also a movie, and there's also two books in that are in canon to the series, and a lost pilot for season four, where Veronica was working for the FBI, which is canon, according to the books. Yeah, nice. So if you look at season three of Veronica Mars, the writing is a little different. 
where they are instead of solving stuff and sort of leaving the characters back at status quo they're actually leaving us on cliffhangers mm. i think this is because there's we've entered the binge era at this point because when i found veronica mars it was already on dvd and so they were in the binge era at that point being in the binge era means netflix was a thing and so they're starting to write towards that binge model it's very early binge model where every episode ends on a cliffhanger and where that revelation would have come and then they would have just been like, well, we'll solve that next week. Now it's like they end it right there at that high point. Yeah. So yeah. that you're entitled to let it go to streaming model. The third season is the first model, the first example of that sort of following that model. It's very bingeable. Yeah. And so, you know, it has, like I said, it has a lot of in-world content that it, it uses. I think the movies were, I mean, the books were used to promote the movie when yeah. that was a thing. But, you know, and then eventually that led to much, much later to a fourth season. Um, but they they sort of bring in a lot of different things as canon that we sort of suspected. But the thing that I that I really love about it is that Rob Thomas clearly has the world of Neptune in his whole body. Like he is, it lives in him rent free. And he just lives with these characters and their relationships. And it's kind of stunning. I don't know. I'd have to look up what the staff would look like for Veronica Mars season four, but I can't imagine that he didn't bring back a lot of his old writers to the staff in order to keep from having to catch everybody up on just like the bevy of material that it would have taken to to do even one season of Veronica Mars because you have all of these interconnected relationships between the characters you imagine like trying to figure out like oh you know what's the relationship between Veronica and Weevil you know what I mean mm -hmm. just like there's a lot it, it will be a lot for someone who wasn't either a fan or on the original staff of writers to just come in and be like I'm gonna write for Veronica Mars it seems to be a tall order but there is a lot of content and it just is used to keep that that universe alive and if if rob thomas can do it i think we're all capable of it i think you know this is like i said this is what we talked about the the way that this is where the puck is going just like veronica mars is one of those shows to adopt that binge model you know i think this is something like a model that the rest of us are going to have to adopt when we create our things in the future and so there's just a a, a lot of content and you can od which is Probably, and I, I should have written more this week. I should have, but I didn't. I didn't write. But you veronica Yeah, I veronica And so I, I, you know, and I think that's why I was having Veronica Mars nightmares because my brain has no outlet. I'm just consuming Veronica Mars and I'm They not, were like, nightmares? This is terrible. I thought you guys were having like amazing power dreams where you guys are just on the case and solving No, stuff. no, it's Neptune. Neptune is awful. It's an awful place to live. It's full of it's like It's like the, the town in Murder, She Wrote. You're like, yes. everybody's dying. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. There's, you know, dogs being run over by cars. There's an angry, you know, low-level uh, Irish gang in addition to you know, rapists and serial rapists and, and murderers and guys who, rich guys, rich guys who blow up planes and kill starlets and, and it's it just, 
in order it is a rough to town. killings. Yeah, it it's, is a rough it's a town. terrible place to live. And the law enforcement is completely inept. You know what I mean? And corrupt. Yeah. In most of the instances of Veronica Mars, seasons one, two, three, even the books, all the way up until, you know, even the sheriff meets an untimely demise in season three. Spoiler alert, sorry. But like, you know what I mean? It's bad. It's a bad place to live. So yes, I was having nightmares. Was, good Lord. It's, it's not, there's no happy moments in Veronica Mars. Denise, what about you? What are you watching or writing or working on? It can be book, music, whatever's got you. <laughs> so, so whatever, whatever you've been, you know, the media or what you're working on, anything that's that's coming through. I'm really into period pieces, which is funny because I can't write them. I can say I can't. I don't. I don't write them. But so I am watching The Gilded Age on. Okay. Love that. Love that. Love that. And I'm watching the last season of The Crown, which I'm loving too. So I'm watching a couple periods. And I'm, there's even others. I can't remember what I'm watching because I, oh, I watched one called The English Game. And it was, I haven't, by, I haven't heard of that. Okay. It's so good. It's by the Julian Fellows, Downton Abbey, right? And right I, you know, because, you know, those things recommend stuff to you. So apparently I watch so many period pieces. Now they recommend <laughs> it to me. <laughs> and it, well, it's about the beginning of European football, which we call soccer. And it's so good. Like, it is just one season. And I loved it. So, yeah. So that's, I'm apparently watching a lot, a lot of that. I am now watching a comedy. I don't know what year it's from. It's not current called um, Insatiable. Oh, and that is like an early Netflix comedy where it? where so she gets her jaw wired shut and she comes back yes. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It's so funny. I didn't even know about it. So somehow it recommended that to me. And it's and darkly funny. Like at times you're like, oh, you're making a very bad choice. Yeah. I will watch this. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I had for the first time just finished and watched Ugly Betty. I'd never seen it. So I really enjoyed that too. So I love America Ferrara. So I enjoyed watching that. And I don't know why it took me so long to watch that, but I finally did and I watched it. So maybe that's why it recommended um, Insatiable. I also just finished, I'm really into Australian comedies right now. So a show called Fisk, which is on Netflix. It's so funny. So, 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 so funny. And she just got nominated for I think it was some Australian awards or whatever, like, but she, the woman who plays the actress, and I wish I knew her name, but I don't. She's just very funny. So that's kind of what I'm watching right now. Nice. Okay, talks for takes home. Anyway. So me, I did some writing <laughs> this week. So I had a project with Julia. We're sending to the Orchard Lab. It's due on the 16th. So we just cleaned it up a little bit. It's basically a modern day queer Buffy high school supernatural story series. So we just needed to perfect speaking of the world things. We had to clarify a couple of things in the world. Uh, it's based on Dante's Inferno, hence Inferno Hills. And it's about this orphan who runs back to her family, how uh, the house her family has in Inferno Hills to discover she is not just an orphan. She's the descendant of Dante himself and can cross between the living world and a portal to hell within the town. And naturally, there's some weird supernatural shit going on, and she is at the nexus of it. So it's kind of like our version of Hellmouth. Well, I think, you know, in terms of that, uh, you could, you know, in terms of something else that you could consume, you could go back and 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 watch Buffy, which is great for that. Or yeah. I think you could also, you could read the, I'm sure you're, 
co-writer Julia could help you with this. If you read Lock and Key, yeah, there's a great sort of story that you can sort of latch onto. It's very much about going back to this ancestral home and finding a legacy of supernatural, a legacy of supernaturalness that is wonderful. And it goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And it's amazing. So if you haven't read Lock and Key, Kate Tuxford, I would recommend, I think it would not I necessarily will, give you ideas, but it would, I think it would inspire you. I will check it out. And also I've been binging the new Marvel series, Echo, which is a lot of fun. And I was a big fan of Reservation Dogs, and obviously Echo has some same native actors from Reservation Dogs. So that got canceled on Hulu, and now it's like so great to see some of these wonderful actors working and maybe making hot Marvel money as well. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm only like three or four episodes in, so no spoilers if you're already ahead of me. But I highly recommend it if you like to watch badass women do, do kicky punchy things. Um, yeah, I'm, then, I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And so you don't really need too much canon from other Marvel stuff. It kind of does stand alone. Although obviously it's tied in with we encounter Daredevil, Kingpin and Hawkeye. So, you know, if you've seen those things, it definitely enriches it. But it does stand alone on its own pretty well. Well, the first episode, they they very, well, it's very much Marvel attempting to, to attempting to course correct because this was probably the only other thing that i tried this week besides veronica mars but yeah the first episode very much gives you sort of a background into it this is because marvel in their course correction has also decided to make all of the stuff that all of the the netflix marvel shows are now canon to the uh, mcu where before mm -hmm. they were sort of wishy-washy on whether or not they were canon there was this sort of thing, especially after No Way Home and Charlie Cox showed up there, where it was just like, oh, this can just be an alternate universe daredevil. You know yeah. what I mean? But now they sort of decided that it is canon to the MCU, that that Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and the yeah. Kingpin and stuff like that, all that stuff is now canon to the MCU. And so... If you're a fan of those shows, if you watch them, Echo is sort of a lineup into that. But you don't have to have watched those shows in order to enjoy it. But they they do give you a pretty thorough sort of primer in the first episode while also giving you the history of our character, our main character. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm interested to see where it's going because it looks like they're trying to go in a very interesting direction. But we'll see what happens. I, I think I'm right where you are, Kate Tuxford. I'm right at, at episode three. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk more next week then. Anyway, so that's that's what I'm working on this week. Uh, I also got to go to the WGA library this week to work. I get to go back next week. So very excited to be around the screenplays. All right. Uh, so what's our resource of the week, Rob? This week's resource is Denise's movie, Five Weddings which is streaming for free seemingly everywhere. So <laughs> I don't want to hear anything from you guys. There's no excuses. All right. No excuses. It's on Pluto. It's on Freebie. It's on Peacock. It's on Roku okay. channel. And so good Lord. One of you got one of those <laughs> or several of those. There's no excuses. Go put it in your eye holes. Watch it. All right. I don't want to hear it. Stop and then it. Stop since there's crying. no dance scene at the end, everybody has to do their own 
Bollywood right. dance. Interpretive scene. dance. Done. Interpretive Done. dance. Yes. <laughs> what Over does the it credits. mean to you? Yeah. I want to see your dances. Show yeah, your work. Great. Yeah. So yeah, no, go go watch it. Do yourself that favor. So that is our show. Screenwriting from the Trenches is currently found on Amazon, Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcasts, as well as KevinOMartin.com. Our screenwriting Twitter drum theme song was written by Zach Morrison and used with his permission. And hey, we'd appreciate it if you could do us that favor in the new year. If you could, you know, rate us five stars or give us a like and whatever platform that you're patronized. Why, Kate Oxford? Algorithms. For questions for us that we can and will answer on the show, you can email us at rob at bmofo.net. You can also find us on the Twitters currently. Uh, I am at Bespectacled Mofo. I am at K underscore Tux. What are you on on the Twitter sphere, Denise? Or if you're I on am... Instagram, that's fine too. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, yeah. I'm at Cruz Writer. So C R U Z Writer. And Zach is at Zach Morrison 18 and these things as well as my YouTube channel where the cinema challenge series we're we're going to be barreling towards this the 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 final shooting day of my $1000 movie. You know, I think I should just do like a mini doc of like what it took to get to finish this freaking $1000 movie. I swear to God and Sonny Jesus. Just <laughs> like the anyway. So that's all going to be in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We hope that you will continue to do so. Now, stop procrastinating. Those pages aren't going to write themselves. Denise, thank you for coming on and thank you guys. You're being such a lovely guest. <laughs>